Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm here. My co-host, Miles, is moving houses this week, so I've got a special guest host with me. Diana File, CTO of Resilient Ops, is here as a guest host. Welcome, Diana. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Great to have you again. Uh, longtime listeners of our podcast may recognize Diana from episode three of the podcast back in May of, of 2016, so check out that episode if you get a chance. Our interviewee today is Kathy Keating, CTO at Airstream Health. Welcome, Kathy. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent to have you. Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Great. So I have been um, a soft, in software engineering for, oh God, way too many decades to uh, mention. I started out as a computer engineering working in artificial intelligence. I worked in artificial intelligence for the first 10 years of my career. And then from then I moved on into... Uh, startup life. So I've worked for seven different startups, founded two, and Airstream is my second founding role. Wow. You said that you've founded seven different startups and Airstream is your is your second time going through as a founder. What, what are the attributes that you have looked that you look for in a successful founding team? I really look for people who have passion for what it is that they're um, they're trying to build. So, do they have a great idea? Do they have passion? Um, are they do willing to do what it takes to do something that's innovative and disruptive to the market? There's a lot of startups out there with a lot of great ideas, but for me, it's got to be something that I can connect to, that I can get behind, and I can do the crazy stuff that's necessary to make a startup successful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, Kathy, do you look at anything else when you're evaluating to join a startup or to found your own, like tech stack or how the existing team works together, anything like that? Yeah. So, uh, uh, many of the seven startups that I've worked with before, I've always come in anywhere from like employee number 15 to um, like 25. Uh, So at that point, I'm really looking for, do they have an idea that I feel I can get behind? Does that idea have uh, a revenue stream, a possible revenue stream behind it? So for me, that's really important because um, as the primary breadwinner in my family, I need to make sure that I'm supporting my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And really looking for a team that has um, transparency and honesty at their core like are you willing to say whatever you need to say to someone else on the on that founding team to get to where you need to get to um so i think that how how the team really works together is incredibly important to me and do i fit in do i fit into that culture because you know the startup life is can get really crazy and really hard and do I really fit into the culture of that team? Are we going to be able to make it through it because of how we interact? Mm-hmm. So. And how do you evaluate that those kinds of sort of soft things? Like how do you evaluate 
honesty or <laughs> I guess you can maybe decide on revenue stream based on some facts, but some of those other things, how do you think about whether you can trust these people or do you often already know the people involved before you, you join in with them? Um, so every startup that I've joined, I knew who that startup was before I joined them and I actually ended up targeting them okay. for that role. So for me, it's really about like what is out in the marketplace, what interests me. Um, in, in one example earlier in my career, I actually had to, to write an article about which product for my current company, about which product was the best product in this particular space. And I landed on this one and I you know, interviewed several people at the company for the article and, and ended up being so interested um, that I went <laughs> out and um, pursued them for the role. And so for me, it's really all about building those relationships and those networks early because you never know what's going to come from them. You never know who's going to have a great idea, um, right. you know, what's going to happen. A, a good example is here at Airstream Health, I met the CEO, Cheryl, over a year and a half before we started the company. And I met her in the context of uh, we were both mentoring GoCode Colorado. And we just hit it off. And we started hanging out. We started uh taking hikes once a month, getting to know each other. And then, you know, as she founded the company, she said, hey, I need a technologist. And it, it just, at that point, it was just a great alignment. Oh, that's really great. It's really interesting. You know, when I was, when I first graduated in, from school, I thought that I was going to get every job that I got off of Craigslist or monster.com. And what I've found over the last several years is it's all about community and, and network. And I think that one of the reasons why that's important, as you noted, was that you can get to know people before there's money on the line and there's career. Uh, you get to know their character before your career is on the line. And I think that that's, that's really important. Uh, this might actually be a good segue into you telling us a little bit about the founding story of Airstream Health and what you guys are trying to do. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so Airstream Health is a health plan for self-insured employers. Um, and if you, a lot of people don't know what a self-insured employer is, so I'll explain that here for a minute. It's really, think of your employee, your employer as your insurance company. So a lot of employees, they think they have insurance through, let's say, Cigna or United or whatever. But in reality, their employer pays their insurance bills and Cigna and United act as more like an administrator and they pass through the bills. So that's really where we come in. We, we act as the administrator on behalf of self-insured employers to facilitate their health plan. And that gives us a lot of opportunity to be really innovative as a startup. So our, our philosophy is really that um, healthcare shouldn't be so hard. Healthcare shouldn't cost as much as healthcare costs today. Um, and we're taking the best practices of about seven different companies in the United States who are self-insured employers whose healthcare costs are anywhere from 20 to 40% less than anyone else. And we're really packaging them into a plug and play platform. Um, health, Airstream Health came out of, uh, Cheryl, our CEO. She was in the first 10, 10, 10, um, 10 CEOs, 10 days, 10 wicked problems um, class a couple of years ago, um, which is a, a really immersive, intense um, opportunity for CEOs or past CEOs to really look at 10 really hard problems in healthcare and determine how can we tackle them. 
And so she came out of that program knowing she wanted to do something in the healthcare space. It's one of the one of the industries out there that is most broken um, mm-hmm. and uh, really needs support to, to move it forward and really needs new perspectives. And so as she came out of that, she said, hey, I really want to do something in the healthcare space. And on all of those hikes and walks and over wine, uh, I really helped uh, work with her to really flush that out. And um, we officially founded in early 2016, and we're currently in a paid pilot right now. Oh, that's cool. great. So you guys are in an alpha program, would you call it? Yeah, um, I, I guess you'd call it alpha. Um, we're in a paid pilot with pa- some of the rural Colorado school systems. Um, so teachers and janitors and administrators at those, um, those schools. And our goal is um, full commercial launch in mid-2017. Got it. And so the founding team is just you and your CEO, Cheryl, is that right? How are the roles divided between the two of you? Um, And there's one more, Um, Julia, she's our COO. Um, Julia has uh, been in healthcare all of her life and held several executive roles. So um, Cheryl is really marketing and sales. Julia is plan, program, and operations, and I'm technology and product. And what's involved in your technology right now at this stage? Um, So in this pilot program, we sit on top of the current um, third-party administrator for our pilot program. So we get uh, feeds of claims data from that current Mm -hmm. administrator. And so largely our platform is uh, really just uh, not even an MVP. It's just really a research database with a bunch of Go programs laid on top of them uh, to really do some analysis. We're trying to do a lot of predictive work about um, determining, you know, who has chronic illnesses, who's managing their chronic illness, who's, who isn't, which providers are charging a reasonable rate, which providers are not, um, and really just trying to get the lay of the land about like how the claim systems really work and where we can add value, where we can lay in those strategies that are going to save money. Okay, that's really interesting. I'm really into data, so um, this sounds so exciting to me. <laughs> Even with one, since you're working in your beta with just one school district, is that enough data to really start understanding what's going on in the space, or are you really excited to get more programs going so that you can, um, you know, build better models and have better understanding? So there's actually 18 school districts in our pilot, all through a single um, trust. Um, So the 18 have come together to kind of pool their resources because a lot of these rural school school districts are small. So like you're Mm -hmm. right, there's 30 or 40 people on the planet, each school district. So we have um, two different variations of the the, um, pilot going right now with these school districts. And there's about... 2,000 members in one part of it and about another 6,000 in the other. So that's a lot of actual data, and we have three years' worth of data. Mm-hmm. So we can look back historically and do a lot of analysis. And it's really interesting to see like what happens in rural versus what happens in more populated areas as well. So. Mm-hmm. You know, in rural, there's just not a lot of competition. So, you know, even if you try to contain costs, there's, let's say, only one hospital in the area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that you guys are taking data science and data analytics and bringing it to to healthcare. Because when I picture health insurance, I just think of it as such an archaic, lumbering (laughs) dinosaurs of companies. And it seems like you're 
leveraging, would it, would it be fair to say data is a competitive advantage for you guys? It's a huge competitive advantage. And um, you're, you're right, a lot of um, the work in healthcare and data really is just about shoving data through, you know, various APIs to get it from one system to another. But that there's not a lot of, um, you know, uh, analytics or, you know, predictive behavior going on. There are still a lot of startups in the healthcare space that are trying to apply predictive analytics to um, healthcare data, but but we're still in our infancy. And my data is my passion. I have worked, that's been where I've gravitated to all of my career. So, um, you know, for me, it's the, the place that gets me excited. And I can't help but notice at the top of the episode, you said that you have some experience uh, in artificial intelligence. Are you guys doing any machine learning on top of your data set at all? Um, we're doing, I have a couple, few algorithms that I've implemented, but nothing, uh, nothing major at this point. Um, you know, we, we are looking to partner with a couple companies that are already doing, um, have some really innovative algorithms in the area and we'll see where that goes. Um, but for now, a lot of it is just really mining the data, understanding the data, understanding how to put a great health plan together. Right. And could you take me a little bit uh, deeper into the tech stack? I think that you mentioned that you've got some Go programs that, that run analysis on top of the data. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a, a large part of our challenge is just getting the data in and really um, making it so it's usable for reporting. So I've, I have a series of Go programs that uh, grow microservices that I've built. Um, I learned Go as part of this platform. I wanted, as I came back into a startup, I wanted to pick a new technology. Um, so I thought it was a pretty interesting technology to pick and boy, it's fast. And, uh, you know, it's been very simple to write a a bunch of these microservices that can do what I need it to do. Um, you know, largely a lot of this is throwaway code and, you know, I, am not yet committed to go as a backend service going forward. Maybe we'll use it in places that it makes sense. Um, but right now it sits on top of essentially a a MySQL database, um, where all this data, um, pretty very structured relational database. Um, and then we have a BI tool that sits on top of that so that we can run a series of reports and, and do some analysis on the data. Okay. I, um, years, years ago, I, I worked in a, a company that was trying to do data warehousing and we did Ralph Kimball style, uh, dimensional relationships. Have you guys done anything fancy like that with your data set? Nothing fancy right now. We are, it is strictly simple third normal, fourth normal firm uh, relationship model. Um, Largely a lot of what we're doing right now is throwaway code. Um, It helps us do our analysis as we go into our commercial launch. Uh, Sure. We'll be utilizing some more third-party platforms. So like from a claims system, we'll be using a third-party platform for just the basic processing of the claims. Um, Our secret sauce is really in a payment card that we're implementing. That's very different from anything in the market. And, um, you know, at at that point, we'll determine what is the what is the data repository we need behind that. Might be Mongo, might be, who knows, MySQL, whatever. I tend to be very flexible when it comes to picking technologies. You know, I want to pick the right technology for the right thing that my team knows how to build. Actually, I want to dig into that a little bit more because I find myself almost like once a week having to make a new technology decision, often in a space that I don't have 
a lot of um, experience or expertise. And I'm not tied to technologies either, but and, you know, want to make a good decision. So how do you approach something like that? Like going back to how you said that you chose Go um, as you started development on this on Airstream Health. How did you make that decision and what trade-offs did you think about? So um, most of the development work I've done in the last several years has been either front-end development work or data work. And so I didn't have a lot of um, strong ties to any back-end development um, technologies. And so for me, that was really greenfield. Like, what do I want to pick? What's going to be fast? Um, what's going to be easy to learn? And um, what's going to keep me excited about learning something new? And so that's largely why I picked Go, because I knew I could get something up and running quickly. Um, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure or frameworks that I needed to, to build to get you know that first program up and running. Um, yeah. It was something new that you know I, I had never seen before. And, and did, you, did you make the decision um, by like Googling or did you talk to a bunch of people? Uh, what, had, what approach do you usually take when making decisions like this? So I tend to, I tend to follow a lot of people on Twitter, um, a lot of people that are making great decisions in technology. Um, mm. I've been to a lot of like Denver Startup Week, Boulder Startup Week events. And, you know, I tend to just, you know, listen and file things in the back of my mind. And I had just heard so many great things about Go and I really wanted to take an opportunity to, um, to learn it and really... At the end of the day, to me, it's a it's a like take all the information that you had in the past from all those different networks, and then just make a gut intuitive decision. And at the mm -hmm. end of the day, there's so many different technology languages, and I wasn't I wasn't locking myself into a corner at that point. So yeah. it, it was a really pretty and easy decision to make. You know, in the past, I've also had to make you know tougher decisions at previous roles, like um, you know the time I chose to to put a team on a new platform with Angular 2, the week Angular 2 release candidate went out, we chose Angular 2 as our platform. That was a much scarier decision because here we were committing to a whole new platform. We were doing production quality work and we were in the release candidate um, mode and, you know, we had to make it work. So... so would it be fair to say that the criteria that you use for making a technology decision changes depending on the lifestyle, or sorry, the, the, the life cycle stage of your company? So if you're in prototyping stage, then it's more important that it's something that you're excited about working on and that it's fast. Uh, whereas if you're writing production-ready code, it's more important that you can hire a team around it and that there's community support, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. You know, like uh, having to make the decision between Angular 2 and Ember, you know, I, I took a look at the community and I said, well, there's a lot more Angular developers. They might not know mm -hmm. Angular 2, but they know Angular 1. Then there are Ember developers um, in the area. And so I had to make that decision. And I did it based on, you know, how am I going to be able to hire into people who can support this long term? Does that answer your question, Dana? I know you said that that's something that you're sort of struggling with how to approach uh, at Resilient Ops. Yeah, I actually really liked Kathy's answer because it mirrors 
what I do, even though I haven't really talked to people about this. I kind of keep my ears open and then just make a decision already. Um, <laughs> and it's worked out so far, but it, it always it always doesn't feel quite right to me because I just wish I had more experience or I had talked to more people. But at some point, you just have to sort of pull the trigger. Well, and I truly believe, Diana, that like it doesn't matter what language you pick you're going to be able to build the software that you need to build. And, you know, yeah, you're going to run into these roadblocks versus those roadblocks. But at the end of the day, I feel like building great software isn't about the technology you pick as much as it is about the people building it and building the right software and building, you know, what needs to be built going forward. You can make anything work. I absolutely agree with that. Although I do, I feel like a big part of my role is keeping people happy. Like if someone's yes. writing code, I want them to be happy in their environment. I want them to be happy with the in the community. And if there's one choice that's actually much better than the other, then why, you know, it's best to pick that one where the community Absolutely. is better or the, you know, the, I really, I'm not going to make, I force anyone to write C++. I actually don't think necessarily you'll be better doing that or happy doing that no matter what the product is. So I think, I mean, <laughs> right. exactly. I get it. I'm with you. So I think in a way we're, we're talking about making technology decisions, which I think can be when, it, when it's framed that way, it, it seems like it's impossible to make the perfect choice, yeah. but I almost view the decision about deciding what technology to go with as a process of creating alignment uh, with an internal team. And one thing that I've realized is that I have internal bi- like biases that are unarticulated towards certain technologies and other people might have different biases. Yeah. So just going through the process of, you know, like you said, honesty and transparency, Kathy, is, is so important. If you can figure out all the, map out all the stakeholders and the things that they care about and, and just sort of like talk through those naughty issues, I, as long as there's honesty and transparency at the core, I think that you're going to arrive at an optimal decision. Exactly. Totally with you. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in the community. Uh, you said that your experience in the community not only found you the, the position at Airstream Health, but it's also really important for you to be immersed in, in the technology scene so that you can make technology decisions. You said that you're involved in Denver Startup Week. You're involved in 101010, which I know is Tom Higley's sort of like accelerator uh, incubator program for, for CEOs. What is your approach to, to mentorship and to being involved in the community? All of my career, I've realized that if I build great relationships with other people, I learn from them and they learn from me. And it's a win-win for all of us. And so actually the, the most of the mentoring that I do right now is with the Secretary of State's office with GoCode Colorado. I've been a mentor there for three years. In the last two years, I've helped them run the mentor program. Um, I just really feel like if people are going to want to reach out and learn something, especially like going to a hackathon or a challenge series, they're there because they want to learn something and they want to grow. And as a technology leader, these people are often more junior um, or um, trying to build skills of their own. And as a technology leader, it's a great opportunity for me to learn and build my leadership skills. So they win by getting someone mentoring them, and I win by helping build my leadership skills even more. And so I really feel like you know mentoring is a huge win-win for all of us. Um, I also mentor with Commons on Champa, um, and that's a great o- opportunity because I get to learn 
all these great different ideas. I get to talk to people about all the ideas they have. You know, do I think those ideas are good ideas? How could they make them better? Uh, where do I foresee challenges for them? And I just think it really helps me open my mind and helps me learn how to be better at what I do. Um, and hopefully I leave the place um, better for them. And, um, and I build networks. So like I've hired a few people out of GoCode Colorado that were after the program looking for roles. And, um, you know, so, so even from a hiring perspective, it's really helped me develop my hiring pipeline as well. Huh. Oh, that's I think great. it's interesting that, sorry, Diana, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's great. And I was also curious to hear, Kathy, how you got involved in Go Code Colorado. Is that something that started three years ago and you got involved at, sort of from the get-go or had it already been around? I did, but it was a total fluke. Um, I literally saw, I was on Facebook one day and um, one of the companies I follow was Rally Software, who we know is CA Technologies now. And they said, hey, we're doing Go Code Colorado this weekend um, in our facility, and we need a couple of mentors. And so I literally signed up on Thursday, and by Saturday I showed up to mentor. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no idea what mm -hmm. the time commitment was. And um, I had a blast. Um, and that was the first year of Go Code Colorado. And then, of course, I went on to stay engaged with them and, and really help support them as a volunteer throughout the process. So it was really a fluke. But, you know, sometimes those are the best things. You see something and something says to you, hey, maybe you should do that. Maybe you should listen to that voice a little more, you know. Mm -hmm. So you just you just saw an advertisement or a comment on Facebook and you showed up. <laughs> it's been like part of your community involvement. I think that's great. Exactly. I've always been that kind of person, though, that like, hey, you know, um, what's going on out in the community? How can I be a part of it? Um, how can I learn more? Um, so, One of the things that I've always struggled with with respect to community involvement is that there's so many different directions that I can that I can go in. You know, I, there's you go to meetup.com and there's just so many different technologies that you can look at. There's a hackathon almost, well, not not almost every weekend, but at least once a month here in Colorado. And uh, at the same time, I, I now have like a wife and, and, and a baby and like other things that I have to do in, in, in my side time. Like how do you approach choosing a direction and, and figuring out what, where you want to spend your time. Because as soon as you start talking about getting involved in the community, it's no longer just between the hours of eight and six during the, during the week, you know? It, it is true. There's definitely um, a, a lesson to be learned for all of us about how to balance our lives properly. And um, mm -hmm. some of us go too far to this extreme. Some of us probably don't engage enough to get value out of it. And, and, and then there's the lessons that we learn as we engage along the way. And, um, you know, I'm of the philosophy that I'll try something once. And if I feel it's a value to me and I feel I can also give value back, um, as part of that two way street, then I'll probably stay engaged. I might stay engaged maybe once a quarter, um, maybe once a year. Um, or maybe on a more uh, regular basis. And so it's just all about like, you know, how is it mutually supportive for both them and us, them and me. Mm -hmm. um, and learning to say no is as important as saying yes all the time. And, you know, I've, I've had to learn that lesson sometimes the hard way by giving too much. 
and then to say, okay, well, maybe I can't take coffee with people every single week, right, that asks, um, or maybe I can't, you know, go to meetups, three meetups a week, right, and, and to learn how to say no to that, and to know that no is just as, as powerful and important as yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great point. And just to piggyback on that, um, I have the same time commitment issue. Of course, everyone does. And I actually find in some ways that um, having more constraints on your time allows you to focus a little bit more because then you can really choose rather than going to every single meetup this week, you really choose, okay, this is the one I'm going to go to this week or these are my two coffee dates I'm going to take this week. And, And then you can really kind of go after what you're what your gut feeling is and really prioritize what you might get the most out of or what you contribute the most to. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, Kathy, I think it's all about the value that the other party gets and the value that you're getting out of it and sort of thinking it from about it from that perspective is really important and knowing that you can say no. Well, and I think that segues into the role that we all play in our our companies as well is like we can't say yes to building too many features concurrently because that makes us less effective as well. And so really building that capability to say yes, when we need to say yes, no, when we need to say no, and to recognize the difference is great, great, um, you know, career advice as well. Uh, I have another question about mentorship, specifically your involvement with GoCode Colorado. The, what are the level of, of people that are going through GoCode? Is it, is it entry-level people or people who just don't have as much experience as, as we do? Um, it, it's really all over the map. Um, there's, a, there's obviously entry-level people. There's a lot of mid-level people trying to build their skills as um, team leads. Um, I have had... Um, CEOs that are between, you know, roles um, come in and sit on teams. And what I love about GoCode Colorado is you get a lot of graphic designers and salespeople and marketing people, and you can really truly feel the team that is strong Mm cross-functionally. What else I like about GoCode Colorado is the mentor system is so robust. We have, you know, sometimes 60, 80 mentors that come through Mentor Weekend which is the second phase of the challenge. And these are like the who's who of, you know, leadership in, in Colorado. And so you get a lot of exposure to that as well. And, and all those mentors leave feeling like they pushed themselves as well and grew. So uh, across that breadth of experience that you just, that spectrum that you just sort of detailed for us, junior to mid-level engineers, to graphic designers, to CEOs or, or mentors, have you found anything that really helps bend the learning curve with respect to growing any of those individuals? I guess, put another way, have you found anything that really accelerates learning for, for any of these types of individuals in the community? Well, I, I feel like the thing that is going to accelerate learning with anyone is put ourselves into a place that we're really uncomfortable with and stay open um, to whatever okay. happens, right? Um, which is why I think some of these challenge series, a lot of there are a lot of incredible people that move um, really far in their career over a weekend simply because they challenge themselves to do something that they never thought they could. 
Um, and that's the truth, you know, as a leader leading an engineering department as well. Is like, how can I put my team in, in a place that's uncomfortable and gives them the support that they need to move forward and grow from that? That's a really, really great answer. <laughs> put my, my team in a place where they're uncomfortable. <laughs> and supported. I, and supported. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because you have to have a certain type of person who's who's interested in, interested in, in expanding themselves and is comfortable being, being uncomfortable. I think that that's a learned skill. I definitely think it's a learned skill. And I think, you know, we, if we understand that about the, ourselves, that helps us better determine what type of role or what type of company we should work for. Right. So mm-hmm. being in startups, especially early stage startups really reinforces how important that skill is to be open and and be uncomfortable and be able to grow. Whereas let's say if you work in a much larger, more established company, you're able to, um, you know, focus and do something that, you know, you can become an expert at. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you look for in your hiring funnel? Um, I definitely look for entrepreneurs, um, you know, here at Airstream, um, you know, we have hackathon winners and, you know, challenge winners and like that. That's the, that's what, or people who have started companies before, those are the kind of, um, you know, uh, skills I'm looking for when I'm hiring into an, a, such an early stage startup role, um, because you have no idea what you're going to do. You have no idea what technology you're going to use, what you're going to be asked to do. Um, and to be able to think entrepreneurially is really important for me and my team at this time. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much direction you can give. Like you don't have that much bandwidth to be giving direction to every single person. So it seems pretty important to have people that can sort of um, ask the right question themselves. Right. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that they're senior um, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of great entrepreneurial people that are, you know, coming out of, let's say, coding schools or have retrained themselves, have had a previous career and retrained themselves into tech. And, and so, um, you know, that in and of itself can be very entrepreneurial of them. In a way, I think I've been working on this theory about bottoms up leadership, which is that if you can connect the help people connect the dots around what's valuable to an organization and what's valuable to product people and CEOs, and on on the other side, help them build the skills to implement the things that that produce value for those types of people, then you're creating bottoms up leadership and you're creating a lot of organic value for the organization. Absolutely. We're, I want to be respectful of everyone's time, and I know that we're getting towards the bottom of the hour. Uh, Diana, Diana, any questions before we go into final questions? Nope, I'm good. Okay, cool. Uh, I will take the first one, and then uh, you can take the second one. Sure. So do you have any favorite engineering war stories, Kathy? <laughs> oh, yeah. I have um, I have a, a great engineering war story. Um, we, we had this... Uh, reporting software that was probably the two or three years past where it should have been rebuilt and and we were limping along with it we knew we needed to and all of a sudden we woke up one day and the reports on that system were taking 24 to 48 hours longer than they should have and we're like hey what's going on (laughs) and and when you have daily reports that take 48 hours to run it's probably not a good idea right and um you know, no tech changes had happened that night before. 
Um, and it took us probably two weeks and 20, 24 hours a day of managing the system, scaling, rewriting parts of it to realize it was a hardware problem. That the, that the backup battery on one of the, um, one of the pieces of hardware had uh, finally died. And it mm -hmm. took two weeks of 24 hours a day, seven days a week of, of nurturing this system. And, you know, under those kind of environments is you really get to know what you're made of and what your team is made of, what your customers are made of. And it really teaches you humility, transparency, trust, um, about how important it is to be honest, even to your customers and that your customers will have your back. And um, that was great because we actually fixed it in about 20 minutes. Oh my <laughs> but, it, but it took two weeks of um, intense pain and um, you get to really know who you are. And, and it was great. I mean, people on my team really rose to the occasion working 24-7 um, to keep the system running because it was so core to the business. And, and, you know, you hate to have those kind of uh, things happen, but we were a much better team for it at the end. Right. After you'd been in battle together. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that you said that you spent two weeks diagnosing the problem and then it was like a 20 minute fix after you figured out the root cause. That's, that's, that's happened to me before, but Most it's crazy. Of those two weeks were actually spent rewriting that code on the fly to be faster because, you know, like uh, I said, it was such bad tech debt to begin with, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it was it was pretty challenging. <laughs> so if you could do it all over again, would you have rewritten that legacy system before that? <laughs> um, yeah, I probably would have. Right? I mean, the, hindsight <laughs> right. is twenty twenty, right? <laughs> it, it certainly is. You can go on a ropes course or something to build trust. <laughs> a twenty four yeah. hour ropes course instead. Yeah, I, I don't recommend that as a way to to build trust in your organization. <laughs> oh, okay, um, but. <laughs> was the stakeholder internal or did you have an external stakeholder for that system? Oh, it was external. Yeah, every it was the main part of the system for most of uh, our customers relied on it on a daily basis. All right, so next um, final question is, what, um, what are your engineering values, Kathy? So I really believe um, in you know, com building community, building trust within an organization, that each and every one of us has career goals and aspirations and that we all um, deserve to have those, um, uh, you know, to be challenged on a day daily basis to grow, um, that we're all mentors and that we can all bring out the best in each other um, is really important. Um, I believe in respect and inclusion, like everyone's, everyone has an opinion, everyone has ideas, and it's really important for us to listen to each other. Um, and, um, you know, just leave, leave the team, the role, the leave everything better than you found it. Like if we can just learn something every day and leave everything better than we found it that at the end of the day that we're all gonna we're all gonna grow and we're all gonna um we're all gonna be better for it so 
Um, I have a quick follow-up, actually. So for the trust, how do you go about building trust in your team, and how do you think about that? About building trust in the team? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really do believe in transparency. I will have any conversation with anyone at any time. Um, to so get- if you just feel something is off, if you feel something is off, you'll just hash it out right there, and that's... Yeah. That's a way yeah. of building trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a, in a really supportive and um, positive manner. I tend to be the kind of leader who asks a lot of questions. So rather than coming and saying, you know, you're doing this X, Y, and Z, I'd rather be, say, is X, Y, and Z working? Is it working for you? Is this way of thinking about working, let's say they're having issues with someone else, is how you're having issues with someone else, is it working for you? How, is it productive? And get them to think about, you know, how they can be more effective. And, and by asking a lot of questions, the people on my team get to own the responses more. I just feel um, that really helps build trust. It gets us to internalize or vocalize what we're feeling internally. Um, mm-hmm. But the more I think that we can be above board and, and honest and tell the truth, you know, like there's no there's no right or wrong answer to pretty much anything. There just is answers. And some of them give us the best path to getting to where we get need to get to next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I have a logistical follow up to that, which is, you know, when you're asking those sort of, when you're, when you're asking those questions, are, are those kind of conversations better in a one-on-one sort of format or do you hold a team retrospective in, in like, what is the scope of, of each of those conversations? I, I do believe like in one-on-ones are really important to, really get people to figure out where they need to go. But I also believe in team retrospectives and my team retrospectives do get very open and very honest with each other, but in a very supportive way. Um, I tend to do retrospectives every retrospectives every couple weeks. Um, just really it's best to get things out and, and to see progress. And, and by having retrospectives every couple of weeks, we get to see progress because, hey, that was a real problem a month ago and now it's not because we did something about right. it collectively. Um, but if there's, you know, issues that someone in particular has, those are much better for one-on-one conversations. And I try to have those, you know, once a month at least with each person on my team. All right, so I think that we're... Uh trending towards the end of the episode final final question kathy where can our our listenership find you online um so i'm most often on twitter um kath keating uh on twitter so that's probably the best place to find me okay nice and how about airstream health kathy at airstreamhealth.com Alrighty. well thanks so much for being on the show kathy and diana thanks so much for being a guest host thank you this was great Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupcto.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.